Hello and welcome to the History on the Side podcast. This is the podcast where we will take a look at the things that happen just beyond the pages of your history book, at the people, places, and ideas that may have been mentioned in passing, but play a much larger role in the story. My name is Josh Burns, and I'll be your host as we continue our series looking at Mithridates VI, the King of Pontus, and the Poison King, Part 2. The First Mithridatic War was on like Donkey Kong. Mithridates began to send his armies west, driving his enemies to the coastal areas of Anatolia in what is now western Turkey. As I mentioned in the last episode, killing happened in the course of the battle, but it usually wasn't until one side gave in to fear that the battle transformed into a slaughter. Still, in most areas of the ancient world, and even today in modern world, some guidelines and rules have been understood and followed by most of the people most of the time. Things like not killing messengers and envoys, no matter who they come from or what message they brought, or not shaving the beards of men who had them as a sign of respect. Temples and places of worship are generally safe zones where people could find refuge in times of crisis. Most of the people, most of the time, does not mean all of the people all the time, though. And then the spring of 88 BC would show the links that Mithridates would go in order to eliminate the Roman threat. In the spring of 88 BC, Mithridates instigated an attack across Asia that would become known as the Asiatic Vespers. This attack specifically targeted anyone and everyone who was a Roman or Italian and marked them for death. Now one quick note, you may be thinking to yourself, self, Romans and Italians are the same thing, right? Why is he differentiating between the two? Well, you see, in modern times, yes, they're the same. You'd be right, but not so much in the ancient world. Essentially, Rome was almost an island unto itself, and at the time, kept official Roman citizenship to themselves as well. Since Roman citizenship came with lots of perks, like voting, public office, and the right to hold property, those Italians outside of Rome who did not officially qualify as citizens really wanted the rights and privileges that came with it. From 91 to 88 BC, in the three years prior to our story, Rome was actually at war with its own allies over this very thing. Now, those rights were eventually conferred to the Italian allies at the end of the Social War, as it was called. And since the First Mithridatic War essentially began when the Social War ended, it is important to make the distinction. Back to the story. Mithridates' victories across Asia in the opening stages of the war caused Romans and Italians across Anatolia to become very fearful for their lives and flee to coastal cities like Ephesus and Nysa. The refugees were camping out in temples and sacred spaces for safety. But in the spring of 88 BC, where they were didn't matter. Now, what I'm about to describe is pretty crazy and might be a little hard to hear. The short version, things did not go well for the refugees. The longer version is that somehow, Mithridates masterminded a secret plot to kill all of those Romans and Italians. At the appointed time, in cities across the land, the people of Anatolia rose up and began to meticulously slaughter any and all Romans and Italians that they could find. Roman and Italian men, women, and children were all killed. The accounts that survived depict some truly horrific scenes. In the city of Adramitian, the conspirators waded into the coastal waters to kill victims who were trying to flee. In Pergamon, conspirators killed their victims inside the temple of Asclepius, the god of medicine, at close range with arrows. Similar scenes happened in the temple of Artemis in Ephesus, in the temple of Vesta in Canos, and the temple of Zeus in Nysa. The people of Trias hired thugs to do the dirty work, but the result was the same in the Temple of Concord, a temple dedicated, ironically, to peace. Now, historians estimate that between 80,000 and 150,000 Romans and Italians were dead in a single day. 
This is virtually all of the Romans and Italians who are residents of Asia. 80,000 to 150,000 in a single day. That's crazy. To put it into a little bit of perspective, at the time of this recording, the home of the New Orleans Saints, the Mercedes-Benz Superdome in New Orleans, has a capacity of 73,000 people according to their website. So if we take the low-end number of 80,000, we are still more than an NFL stadium full of people. On the high end, you'd be looking at slightly over two Superdomes worth of people dead in a single day before the advent of weapons that can eliminate large numbers of people quickly. That's astonishing. You would think that with an attack of this magnitude being planned, something would have been said to the Romans or Italians to give them some kind of warning. Here's the thing, though. Historians have no idea how Mithridates managed to pull this off with so much secrecy. We know that the conspirators promised to round up and kill all the Roman and Italian men, women, children, and slaves. Now, any slave who spoke multiple languages would be spared, and any slave who killed their Roman masters would be rewarded. Conspirators agreed to take all of the dead's belongings and to leave their bodies unburied. Anyone who is suspected of trying to warn a Roman or anyone who is caught trying to bury any of those bodies would be punished. Any debtor who killed a Roman moneylender would have their debts canceled. Bounties were issued for Romans who were in hiding. And as far as we know, the attacks came with absolutely no warning for the majority of the victims. This raises two questions. First, who were these conspirators? And second, why were these attacks carried out in the first place? The first answer is that everyday people rose up and carried out the attacks. The common, ordinary people. It makes me wonder how many times a person was cut down by someone they had eaten dinner with the night before. Now, to answer the why question, we have to understand some of the background info. In the book, The Poison King, author Adrian Mayer states, quote, The killers were indigenous Anatolians, Greeks, and Jews reacting to Rome's harsh rule and corrupt system of taxation, which threw individuals and entire cities into deep debt, end quote. The penalty for deep debt in those times was a lot harsher than just living with a bad credit score. People in debt or members of their family were sold into slavery if they could not pay up. Now, by this point, slavery was forbidden by ancient Persian law and religion. So for the people of Anatolia, that right there was bad enough. Even worse was the sheer scale at which this was practiced under the Roman system. Horrifically, the Romans practiced slavery so heavily that it was said that as many as 10,000 people might be traded, bought, or sold in a single day in the Roman slave market on the island of Delos. Some estimates place a number of slaves in Italy, just in Italy, at this time to around 1.5 million. Some of these slaves were children sold by parents to pay taxes. The words tax paid were sometimes tattooed on a slave's forehead. To add even more insult to egregious injury, Many of the Romans and Italians who settled in the region did so by buying or acquiring the land of the bankrupted indigenous peoples. And the crazy part was, even the Romans were aware of this. The Roman orator Cicero, who lived during this time period, puts it this way, quote, The Roman name is held in loathing, and Roman tributes, tithes, and taxes are instruments of death, end quote. The reaction to the mass slaughter was met with shock, outrage, and fear in Rome. The city was in the middle of a well-documented civil war between Lucius Cornelius Sulla, who will be important to our story a little later, and Gaius Marius. Even in the midst of this destructive war, portents in the city foretold doom. 
We're told that in the middle of a clear sky, a celestial trumpet suddenly let out a long, mournful note. Louis Armstrong and Miles Davis weren't, born, weren't around yet, so the Etruscan soothsayers declared this to be the advent of a new world order brought on by the end of the age. The Asiatic Vespers stayed in the minds of the people of the region for years. Five hundred years later, in fact, St. Augustine recalled the tragic Mithridatic slaughter as the Vandals and Goths were running over Rome. Bruce Hitchner, historian of Rome and the director of the Dayton Peace Accord, says, quote, The massacre of 88 B.C. certainly looks like terrorism, genocide, and a crime against humanity. End quote. And Adrian Mayer states, quote, In terms of scale and cold-blooded premeditation, the Black Day in 88 B.C. was the most horrendous and most successful single act of terror in ancient history. End quote. As I said earlier, historians have absolutely no idea exactly how the order to attack came through. Some ancient sources describe top-secret messages being passed along by various methods, including inscribing messages on wax tablets, hiding them in the soles of sandals or under horse blankets, inside of dead rabbits, don't know why just rabbits, but rabbits, braiding them into women's hair, or even tattooing them on the shaved scalps of messengers. I guess so that by the time the messenger got there, the hair would grow back, they'd shave the head and read the message. Hate to have to tattoo a reply, but anyway. Rose Mary Sheldon, a historian of ancient espionage, which, by the way, sounds like the coolest thing to research ever, says, quote, We do not know to this day how Mithridates coordinated this feat, how he communicated with his agents, or how he kept such a deadly plan secret, end quote. As the Romans were reeling from the news of the terrible massacre, Mithridates prepared to try to liberate Greece and the Mediterranean from Roman oppression. Athens, Sparta, and Thebes all declared war on Rome following the sacking and utter destruction of the Roman-controlled city of Delos. Macedonia, home of Alexander the Great, Mithridates' hero, came over to the Pontic side. Mithridates eventually controlled most of mainland Asia, such as Bithynia, Cappadocia, Paphlagonia, and Anatolia, as well as the Aegean Sea, Macedonia, and much of mainland Greece. With these early victories and new territory came even more wealth. Our friend grew so wealthy that he naturally decided to show off. Historians know of at least two statues of the king that were cast in solid gold, one life-size and one ten feet tall. We also know that Mithridates began to hand out gold and territory to his friends. No word on whether or not he put all that wealth in a giant bank vault with a diving board. The first Mithridatic war was going well for him. This was the apex of Mithridates' power and influence, but it was not to last. Bad omens seemed to foretell dark times ahead. Our good buddy Plutarch tells us of one of these bad omens. He writes, quote, It is said that about the time when Sulla was conducting his armament from Italy, many omens occurred to Mithridates, who was staying in Pergamum, and that a victory, bearing a crown, which the people of Pergamum were letting down upon him by some machinery from above, was broken in pieces just as it was touching his head, and the crown falling upon the theater came to the ground and was destroyed, which made the spectators shudder and greatly dispirited Mithridates, though his affairs were going on favorably beyond all expectation. End quote. Now, in case you didn't catch that, during a festival to celebrate the Pontic successes, Mithridates was almost crushed by a giant statue of Nike, the winged goddess of victory, that the people had rigged to fly over and land on the platform that he was on. Think about that. 
Rome could have lost one of its most dangerous enemies if the man had been standing in just a slightly different spot. The king was safe, but this did not bode well for his public image. You can't really have a big public festival proclaiming how awesome you are and have the goddess of victory in high-priced shoes almost take you out. Doesn't look good on the Instagram. The Romans and their allies would not go down so easily. For Mithridates, the war in the Mediterranean began to suffer numerous setbacks. Islands that he thought would be easy picking stood firm and resisted. Prophecies and disastrous oracles like the Nike statue stood against him. His militaries failed him and were turned back by the relentless Roman war machine. Everything depended on keeping the Romans from retaking Greece. But before we dive into all that, we need to backtrack a little bit, because Plutarch just introduced a major player for me who will play a huge role in what's to come. That major player is Sulla, or to give his full name, Lucius Cornelius Sulla Felix. Now Sulla is a fascinating character in Roman history. Much has been written about him already, but here's the History on the Side podcast version. Sulla was a brilliant and dangerous man. One of the first mentions of him that we have connects him with the capture of Jugurtha, a Numidian king who had been at war with the Romans all the way back in 106 BC. He saw action in wars against the Teutones and the Cimbri, two Germanic tribes that were causing Rome trouble, and won fame and glory during the social war against the Italian allies wanting citizenship. His war with Gaius Marius is one of the leading causes for the collapse of the Roman Republic. Later in his life, he would famously march on the city of Rome and take power by force, instigating a series of purges that would eliminate any rivals to his power in the city. He was consul of Rome twice and then declared himself dictator in order to reform parts of the Roman government that he didn't agree with. But all that's in the future. In the now of our story, Mithridates was on his way east with five legions of Roman troops at his back. Because of some well-documented politics that we won't get into here, but are covered extremely well in Dan Carlin's Death Rose of the Republic hardcore history episodes, Sulla had been declared an enemy of Rome. Not one to really care about what his enemies thought of him, this did not stop the Roman general from carving a massive swath of destruction through Greece on his way to Anatolia to confront Mithridates. Treasures in the Temple of Apollo in Delphi, Zeus at Olympia, and Asclepius in Epidaurus were taken. Athens was starved and utterly destroyed after the defenders mocked Sulla's appearance and insulted his wife. Battle after battle, through superior generalship, treachery, or luck, the Romans continued to advance. In 86 BC, two things happened that would ultimately shape the outcome of the war. First, two of Sulla's mortal enemies, men named Cinna and Marius, began to begin a purge of Sulla's supporters in Rome. The second was the Battle of Chaeronea. Now, a quick note, I'm probably going to butcher some of these names, so just know that. The Battle of Chaeronea took place near the city of Chaeronea in Greece between the Romans under Sulla and the Pontic forces under a man named Archelaus, one of Mithridates' best generals. Archelaus commanded an army of 120,000 soldiers with 90 scythe chariots. According to Appian, Sulla had only 30 to 40,000 men. Now, these numbers are heavily disputed as we don't have a roll sheet or anything like that. The numbers come from the memoirs of Sulla himself, who would have been eager to show off his military prowess by defeating a vastly larger foe. No matter the actual numbers, it's clear that the Romans were heavily outnumbered, and thanks to the exotic nature of the Pontic forces, a little intimidated. Mithridates had brought soldiers to the battle from all over his empire. The sights, sounds, and smells had to be disorienting to the Roman soldiers, 
long-haired barbarians with tattoos all over their bodies, camels, swords inlaid with gems, armor embellished with silver and gold, dozens of different languages being spoken and shouted. Despite Archelaus's best attempts, Sulla refused to fight. Instead, he set his men to distracting tasks, meant to get both his army used to seeing the enemy and to make his troops eager to fight to escape boredom. Meanwhile, Sulla and his spies were watching the Pontic forces and noted that Archelaus had wisely camped in the rocky hills above Carinaea. This gave Archelaus the high ground at a defensible position with a good view of the surrounding territory. General Kenobi would be so proud. Anyway, it was clear that the Pontic army did not intend to fight there. So, how to get them out? Two pro-Roman Greeks named Anaxidamos and Homo Locos, I'm not going to say those names again, approached Sulla with a plan. Apparently, they knew of a hidden path that would lead high above the Pontic camp. The two Greeks proposed that Sulla send some soldiers up the path in order to rain down boulders on the enemy and force them out onto the battlefield in disarray. Sulla liked the plan, sent the men up the path, and moved the rest of his army into position to intercept and pin Archelaus's forces. I like to imagine that what came next looked a little like the opening scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark when the giant boulder comes crashing after Indiana Jones. The plan was a success. Boulders and stones began to rain down on the Pontic camp. Confused and disoriented, the Pontic army ran straight into the swords of Sulla's army. Here was where the multitude of languages and cultures worked against Archelaus. In the cacophony of battle, orders could not be easily understood. In their haste to escape the falling rocks, the Pontic forces had lost the advantage of their greater numbers. Somehow, Archelaus was able to order a charge of his scythe chariots with the goal of recreating the chaos and carnage of the battle with Bithynia that we talked about in our first episode. There was a problem, though. War chariots were most deadly when they had four things going for them. First, a long start to get up to speed. Second, smooth ground. Third, the element of surprise. And fourth, an opponent confused and in disarray. At the Battle of Carinaea, the scythe chariots had none of those advantages. Plutarch says that the Romans merely broke ranks and let the ineffective weapon simply pass through before reforming. Laughing and applauding, the Romans killed the chariot drivers with their spears and called for more chariots. Following this, Archelaus was able to counterattack with a successful cavalry charge, but pinned in by the unfavorable terrain and the professional Roman soldiers, his men began to break and run. As mentioned in the last episode, this is where the battle turned to a slaughter. Sulla's forces devastated the enemy forces, capturing some but killing more. According to Adrian Mayer, the Romans took thousands of prisoners, and of the original 120,000, only around 10,000 Pontic soldiers were able to escape. In what is certainly an exaggeration, Sulla claimed to have lost less than 20 men. After the battle, Sulla gathered all of the weapons, chariots, and armor and burned them as a sacrifice to the gods of war. He also built two monuments to celebrate his victory. One stood on the battlefield and the other on the cliff overlooking the camp. That one on the cliff had the names of Zeus, Mars, and Aphrodite inscribed on it, as well as the name of the two pro-Roman Greeks whose name I can't pronounce anymore. The two monuments are still intact and were discovered in 1990. Hearing of the disaster at Carinaea, Mithridates hastily gathered another army and sent it to Greece under the command of his friend Dorylaus. This force met up with Archelaus, who had somehow managed to raise another army. That's going to be a theme with Mithridates. The man is just able to just 
summon armies out of thin air. It's crazy. Anyway, these two armies would engage Sulla again near the town of Orchomenus. This was a wide-sweeping plain bordered by marshland. Seeing the advantages of the treeless plain would give his enemies, Sulla immediately had his men dig massive trenches to funnel the Pontic soldiers into those marshes. Here, the newly created Pontic forces had some success with relentless cavalry charges that terrified the Roman soldiers. Finally, Sulla got down off his horse, grabbed a battle standard, and rushed past his men, yelling, quote, Romans, I will win an honorable death here without you. When they ask you where you betrayed your commander, you will have to tell them about Orchomenus, end quote. This shaming rallied the Romans who fought back ferociously, some wielding handfuls of arrows like swords in the close quarters combat. The next day, the two armies faced off again, but no one moved. Then a daring Roman soldier rushed out and cut down the man in front of him. Then, according to Appian, quote, there was a great rush and shouting on each side, followed by many valiant deeds, end quote, which is just his way of saying it was like the scene in the two towers at the Battle of Helm's Deep. Anyway, in the chaos, the Pontic army found itself steadily pushed back into the marshes. Many men fell and drowned in the deeper parts of the water, while others cried out in strange tongues to be spared. They weren't. Once again, Mithridates' forces were on the losing end of a slaughter so great that even today, fragments of armor and weapons turn up in the soggy ground. In 2004, a farmer discovered Sulla's 23-foot-tall monument to this battle. At this point, Sulla was desperate to return to Rome to check the power of Marius and his faction. Like so many others, Mithridates could not seem to find a way to win against the Romans anymore. Seeing that he couldn't win, Mithridates sent Archelaus to discuss peace terms with Sulla. In late 85 BC, Sulla and Mithridates met face-to-face -face on the plains of an area called Dardanus near the ancient city of Troy. Both men understood their place at this meeting. Mithridates, seemingly unable to orchestrate any meaningful victories anymore, must have known that he was, in all respects, the loser. He was not really in any position to negotiate or demand much. But that didn't stop him from putting on a lavish display. Plutarch tells us that Mithridates brought some 200 ships, 20,000 infantry, 6,000 horsemen, and a small contingent of his scythe chariots. Can't leave those behind. Dressed in Persian finery, he walked out to meet his foe. On the other hand, Sulla, eager to return to Rome, showed more restraint by bringing only 200 horsemen and about 1,000 infantry. In Plutarch's description of the meeting, Sulla begins by asking whether or not Mithridates accepted the terms that Archelaus, Mithridates' general, had agreed to. Mithridates remained silent. Sulla angrily, I imagine, spat, quote, Well, those who sue for peace must speak first. Conquerors may remain silent. End quote. It's such a great line from Sulla as you can almost feel the anger and impatience behind his words. Mithridates' response couldn't have helped his mood either, as he put some of the blame for the conflict on the gods and the rest on the Romans themselves. No doubt he would have continued on, but Sulla had been warned that Mithridates was a skillful order and quickly cut him off. Sulla instead began to berate Mithridates, reminding him of all the atrocities that he and his men had committed. No doubt the memory of the Asiatic Vespers was fresh on his mind. Unfazed, Mithridates calmly agreed to the terms set forth by his general. An embrace and a kiss on the cheek later between the two leaders and the first Mithridatic war, as it came to be known, was over. But what had Mithridates agreed to? 
he had to renounce the title King of Kings, withdraw from Bithynia, Cappadocia, and Paphlagonia, and promise to play nice with, all, with the kings of all those places. He also promised to release Roman prisoners and deserters, to pay 2,000 talents, and to hand over 70 ships to Sulla. A pretty light penalty, all things considered. The loss of 70 ships was a small blow to his navy, but nothing he couldn't overcome. And Adrian Mayer notes that 2,000 talents was a piddling sum compared to Mithridates' vast wealth. And, by the way, he never sent any of those captured Romans back to Sulla or anyone else. Now, Sulla's soldiers were understandably angry over the light treatment that Mithridates received, especially after hearing their own commander recount all of the king's sins. But that was Sulla's problem now. Mithridates packed up and returned to Pontus and settled in for a long peace. He had escaped the war with relatively little penalty to himself, but he began to wonder where it all went wrong. Everything was going so great in the opening stages of the war, and then it all fell apart. The questions from this string of losses at the end seemed to eat at him. The thought of treachery and betrayal stayed in his mind. What other explanation could there be for the sudden, inexplicable series of defeats that brought the Romans to his door? Sulla was good, but he couldn't have been that good, right? Paranoia definitely started to seep in. The city of Colchis requested that Mithridates' son, Mithridates the Younger, be their ruler. And I promise that the next series we cover will have fewer multi-generational names. Seriously, it's like they didn't have a papyrus copy of a thousand and one baby names. It's like, hello, my name is Mithridates, this is my father, Mithridates, my brother, Mithridates, and my son, a Mithridates. Anyway, without any evidence, Mithridates VI feared that his son was trying to usurp his power. Mithridates had his son brought to the palace in Pontus, placed in golden chains, and then executed him. When Archelaus, the general who had opposed Sulla, learned that Mithridates was beginning to question his loyalty, Archelaus defected to the Romans, and just like that, two of Mithridates' best military minds were lost to him. Two years later, in 83 BC, war broke out again. The problem with the verbal agreement between Sulla and Mithridates was that it had never been ratified or approved by the Senate, meaning that Rome didn't officially recognize it. It remained little more than a verbal agreement between the two men even two years later. Into all this marches Lucius Licinus Murena, the Roman commander that Sulla had left behind in Anatolia. In the summer of 83 BC, with no warning, no prompting, no endorsement from Rome, Murena invaded western Cappadocia and attacked one of Mithridates' garrisons at the city of Camana. Small side note on Camana. Historian Adrian Mayer says that Camana boasted the rich Temple of Love, not kidding, Temple of Love, where legends say that Agamemnon had sacrificed his daughter Iphigenia to the goddess Artemis at the beginning of the Trojan War. It was said that the sword that killed Iphigenia was one of the precious relics on display in the temple. Anyway, Mithridates protested, saying that Marina had violated the Treaty of Dardanes, to which Marina replied, quote, Treaty? What treaty? I've never seen a treaty document. End quote. Angry, the Pontic king sent word to Rome and the Roman Senate, protesting the actions of this rogue commander. He refrained from attacking, instead choosing to wait for Rome's reply before retaliating. This must have been especially difficult as Marina continued to attack and plunder his way across Mithridates' territory, taking wagon loads of plunder. Finally, in 81 BC, Sulla, who had now taken control of the Roman Senate, sent a commissioner to order Marina to cease attacking Mithridates 
who had made peace with Rome. All well and good, right? Mithridates played by Rome's rules, and Rome finally took care of things. Except for one small problem. Mithridates' spies had observed the Roman commissioner whispering privately with Marina. Suspicious? Maybe. But then Marina invaded yet again. No doubt feeling betrayed and angry, Mithridates counterattacked, and this time actually led his troops into battle against Marina's forces. We are told that Mithridates was around 51 years old, and he soundly defeated the younger Marina this time. He routed Marina's forces in a much-needed victory over the Romans. The people of Anatolia welcomed Mithridates as a liberator. Sulla, meanwhile, was scrambling to put a stop to Marina's reckless action. He sent Gabinius, a stern tribune, to threaten Marina with severe punishment and to, and to negotiate another peace with Mithridates. With righteous indignation, Mithridates listed his demands, which mostly involved getting back some land in Cappadocia that he had been forced to give up previously. Eager to bring peace and stability back to the region, and knowing that Mithridates was firmly in the right, Gabinius hastily agreed and ended the Second Mithridatic War. So what now? The victory over the Romans in the Second Mithridatic War put Mithridates at a high point in his power, influence, and popularity. He had gone up against the Roman war machine and won. The defeats of the First War were, in the minds of the people at least, mostly forgotten. Mithridates didn't forget, but for now at least, he was able to rule his Black Sea Kingdom in relative peace for almost a decade. Now let's take a pause here from all the war talk and take a look again at Mithridates' home life. Like we mentioned in the previous episode, and referenced in the title so far, Mithridates loved cultivating, experimenting, and ingesting poisons and toxins of all sorts. Galen tells us that Mithridates once received a message from his friend, Zapyrus, the royal physician in Alexandria. Apparently the messenger who met Mithridates was a condemned criminal, and Zapyrus invited Mithridates to test an antidote that the messenger carried on the messenger himself. It is also possible that Mithridates publicly drank poisons to show off his immunity to them. In any case, the Pontic king was experimenting with all of these substances, hoping that he would be able to perfect his Mithridatum, his universal antidote. In his book, Natural History, Pliny the Elder notes, quote, It was he, Mithridates, who first thought, the proper precautions being duly taken, of drinking poison every day, it being his object, by becoming habituated to it, to neutralize its dangerous effects. The prince was the first to discover two of the various kinds of antidotes, one of which indeed still retains his name, and it is generally supposed that he was the first to employ the blood of ducks of Pontus as an ingredient in antidotes, from the circumstance that they derive their nutriment from poisons. End quote. There's those ducks again. Now, Pliny states that Mithridates made all of these discoveries for the benefit of mankind, but it seems to me that this practice is more about self-preservation than for the betterment of his fellow, fellow humans. Still, the universal antidote idea stuck around for quite some time after Mithridates' eventual death, which we'll cover in the next episode. We know of several prominent figures from history who are at least tentatively linked with ingesting Mithridatum pills every day. This list is impressive and includes people like Nero, Charlemagne, Alfred the Great, Henry VIII, and Elizabeth I. Their versions may not have been exactly the same as Mithridates' concoction, but there was enough of a desire for resistance to poison damage that it seems to have been worth it. Along with his hobby of continually testing and retesting poisons on himself and others, 
Mithridates certainly enjoyed the finest things his kingdom and trade networks had to offer. He had a vast gemstone and agate ring collection, as well as large amounts of precious metals and exquisite luxury items like bejeweled caskets, golden horse trappings, and sets of armor decorated with jewels. He also built Canaan Corion, a fortified treasure house for all of, the, all of his valuables, his gold, silver, personal papers, and priceless works of art. The fortress held spacious gardens and even a large zoo-like park, which held rare creatures from around his trade network. I wonder if he ever got the urge to powerbomb any of the ostriches or tigers that were supposed to have lived there. In 80 BC, Mithridates sent ambassadors to Rome in order to finalize the still unsigned peace treaty from the First Mithridatic War. Those efforts failed, the treaty was never signed, and in 78 BC, Lucius Cornelius Sulla died. Plutarch says that his bowels rotted and he was eaten by worms, but historians now believe liver failure or a ruptured gastric ulcer to be the cause of death, and I'm sorry if you were eating during uh, what I just said. My bad. Sulla's self-written epigraph reads, quote, No friend ever served me, and no enemy ever wronged me, who I have not repaid in full. End quote. Which is just an epic line that highlights the man's cruelty and his friendly sides in one sentence. Sulla's death was the latest step on the long, spiraling staircase that was the collapsing of the Roman Republic. In any case, suddenly in Rome there was a power vacuum that was felt all the way over in Anatolia. Mithridates had studiously kept the peace with Rome and had done everything that was demanded of him by Sulla, even, of, even abandoning once again the lands of Cappadocia. But with Sulla out of the picture and the Roman Republic without a strong leader, the times they were a-changing. For all intents and purposes, the First Mithridatic War was still ongoing, as far as some in Rome were concerned. Mithridates and his new ally, King Tigranes of Armenia, decided that now was the time to retake what had been taken from them. Now a quick aside on King Tigranes. He and his Armenian kingdom had supported Mithridates during the First Mithridatic War, but he was careful not to involve himself in the conflict with Rome. Tigranes' kingdom stretched from the western coast of the Caspian Sea in the east to the Pontic and Cappadocian borders to the west and down into the northern parts of present-day Syria in the south. Not a huge kingdom size-wise, but for a time it was one of the stronger areas in the eastern part of Rome's territory. Upon Mithridates' defeat in the First War, Tigranes took up the title of King of Kings, and the two men forged an alliance and made plans to attack and invade, you guessed it, Cappadocia. Here we go again. This new Armenian army was massive. In her book, The Poison King, Adrian Mayer states that Tigranes commanded 120,000 foot soldiers, 12,000 cavalry, and 12,000 mounted archers, complete with poison-tipped arrows, because why not? I wonder who could have supplied that much poison. Tigranes marched into Cappadocia with his massive swarm of an army, and to the surprise of absolutely no one, met no resistance. As he swept into the area, Tigranes began the forced relocation of massive amounts of people. This kind of forced migration happened frequently in ancient times. See the Babylonian and Assyrian exiles of the Hebrews from their lands in Israel and Judah as other examples. Forced migration served to highlight the power that a ruler was able to exercise. It was as if to say, not only can I destroy your cities and destroy your land, but I can move you to another place and remind you of how badly I beat you. Because I'm awesome. Anyway, Tigranes was able to march unopposed into Cappadocia, 
taking all of the loot and plunder while leaving the depopulated land itself to Mithridates, which the Pontic king was more than happy to take over. Around this time, Mithridates also gained a strong ally in Sertorius, the commander of a rebel faction of Romans stationed in Spain. Sertorius was an amazing general who was reported to never have decisively been defeated in battle. An alliance of Mithridates would put Rome smack in the center of two powerful foes bent on its destruction. In 75 BC, Sertorius and Mithridates finalized their alliance. Mithridates would provide money and ships. Sertorius would help him retake Anatolia. Cities in the area started to come under the joint control of Sertorius and Mithridates' forces, but this was small compared to what came next. In Bithynia, King Nicomedes IV died without a child heir. His will surfaced, and it was discovered that he had decided to give his entire kingdom of Bithynia, essentially Mithridates' neighbor, to the Romans. This looked too much like a Roman ploy to gobble up more land as cheaply and quickly as possible for the Romans. Mithridates understandably and almost immediately declared the will to be a fake and began preparations for war. The Romans also prepared to ensure their takeover of Bithynia as well, and just like that, in 73 BC, the Third Mithridatic War began. And that's where we'll end this, this episode. Quick thank you to everyone who has given their support so far in this uh, early stages of this podcast. I really appreciate it. Uh, shout out to David and Crystal uh, in particular for their support and encouragement um, as we get this thing going. Quick note, we are now live on iTunes uh, and on Stitcher and Google Play. Um, so you can tell your friends that uh, you can find this podcast there. You can also email uh, at historyontheside at gmail.com if you want to leave some feedback or ask any questions. Uh, and you can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at History on the Side. Just search for that uh, and you'll find us there. Come stop by and uh, I'll post pictures on both websites of things that pertain to what we talk about in the episodes. Um, and uh, it'd be a good place to, again, leave some feedback or get some people involved in the show. Next time, we'll wrap up our look at Mithridates in The Poison King Part 3. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you then.